0: Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. St. Francis of Assisi once said, The one you're looking for is the one who is looking. I think one of the most controversial and difficult aspects of finance relates to the relationship between God, religion, spirituality, and money. I know most people are probably familiar with the stereotypical TV evangelist who's up espousing principles and religious teachings, and sadly, most often not being able to live up to them themselves, encouraging their members to give whatever they have to the cause, and then there are the other extremes, which would be my friend, Pastor Rodney Nichols, who I interviewed in episode 12 of Upthinking Finance, who runs a small church in Compton, California and can barely afford to keep the lights on. And then, of course, you've got these megachurches with millions and billions of dollars. And so the question in my mind is, where do you go from being in the world and trying to build the kingdom to being of the world and simply trying to build wealth? And so today's guest hopefully is going to help us navigate through this. His name is Reverend Dale Allen Hoffman. He's a world-renowned author, actor, musician, performance artist, and professional speaker. Dale is an ancient Aramaic wisdom keeper, mystic and energetic healer, revealing long-suppressed ancient secrets and healing modalities, ancient insight for the present moment. He has published numerous audio and video programs, and is the author of the book Echoes of an Ancient Dream, Aramaic Toning on the Path of Light. For the past 20 years, Dale has lived in the Blue Ridge Mountains with his beautiful family in the spiritual epicenter of Asheville, North Carolina. So it's my pleasure today to welcome coming to us from Asheville, North Carolina, Reverend Dale Allen Hoffman. Dale, welcome to Up Thinking Finance.
2: It's good to be here. Happy anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. 35 years, right? That's awesome.
1: Yep, that'll come up. I imagine I'll be bringing AA up at some point, because when we're talking about money and spirituality, they're probably one of the purest organizations, at least in my view, as it relates to that. So where do we start? I guess there's the scripture that comes up in the parable of the unrighteous steward. That's Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold on to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Let's go with that. See where it takes oh, us.
2: I'll launch right in. There's a little bit that happens right before this, where one of the disciples, I don't think it was a particular one. I think it just says that the disciples asked him, why do you always speak in parables? And like, before we even get into this, he has an interesting response. He says, to you, it is given to see the kingdom. Now, without going really deep here, kingdom in Greek, Basileia, in Koine Greek, which is what probably what this was originally written in, and kingdom from Yeshua's language, which is molkuta from Aramaic, both are gendered feminine. So, he says, to you, it's given to see the kingdom. Intriguingly feminine, what that means is it's not a location, it's not a place. It's not something you can hold in your hand which would be masculine, but rather it's a state of being or an attitude. So right away, he's saying, okay, to you, you basically understand that this is about a state of being. But to those outside, everything is in parable. Now, funny enough, if you kind of look at that on the surface, it's like, okay, well, you're saying that everybody outside of the discipleship? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Or maybe everybody outside the house, he was in someone's home at the time. It's like, no, I don't think so. What it's basically saying is, To those who aren't seeing, clearly everything is coded, everything is parable, everything is a mystery. The interesting thing about parables is you can put them into numerous different languages and kind of squeeze them through different translations and languages, and because it's not specific details, it's more of a story, it'll kind of survive its way through multiple translations, which is quite brilliant. But the thing about this one here, I get the mammon question a lot. Episcopalian priest Cynthia Bourgeau says this. She's brilliant. She was one of the first female Episcopalian priests to be ordained. And she says, Yeshua's parables were meant to fry your sockets, (laughs) like a Zen koan, almost like to make the brain implode upon itself, the intellect, so that we can actually have an open experience, an open state of being. Well, funny when it talks about that stretching two bows, you can't stretch two bows. Well, you could maybe look at a koan, the sound of one hand clapping. I think it really means more of like that. But mammon is the issue here because, and I see it all the time, even in translations, they'll just write money. You can't serve God in money. Without going into the God idea, I'm just going to push it off to the side because that's an entire show and all we'd be doing is scratching the outside edge of it. But mammon's interesting because it's an Aramaic word. The word's actually mamuna, mamuna, and it has a very specific meaning and money can be an example, but it doesn't mean money. The word is materiality. What does that mean? That means essentially that we're looking around at this physical everything, the keyboard, the mouse, the monitor, the trees, the walls, and we're just essentially assuming that that is what is real, which is an interesting thing when you start digging in here because You go back 2,000 years ago, people were telling us way back, even before the Buddha or before the Upanishads and the Vedas, people were saying long before Jesus ever showed up that this world is, I don't know if it's, you could call it an illusion, but I like what Sri Aurobindo says. He calls it in the life divine. He talks about the pseudo soul or the ego, which is actually Yogananda's phrase, but talks about the physical world being a supra-rational enigma. And the key to a lot of Uh, Very obviously, in the Greek and in the Aramaic, what Yeshua was sharing, really a huge part of the key was taking our focus away from what we think is the world and bringing it back to the inherent nature of our divine being. One of the things I often say is I quote St. Francis of Assisi, where he said, what you're looking for is what is looking. So, intriguingly, looking at Mammon, what that's really saying is, to you guys here, I've shown you we've had this deep experience of being able to see things as they are. Yet, to those who do not yet have sight, who are sort of locked in the world, essentially, they're not really going to see things as they are. They're only going to see what their brain codes upon it. And that's the funny thing. So many of the ancient secrets that I speak of, the word secret in Hebrew, sod, Without going too deep into that, Peshat, Ramesh, Darash, and Saad are four levels of what's called exegesis or translation. And that's it's actually where the acronym paradise comes from. Peshat, Ramesh, Darash, and Saad. But Saad, interestingly, means secret, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it was hidden from your view. It actually means something that's literally right in front of your face, but you don't see it. Because all you're seeing is what your indoctrination, your conditioning, your book smarts, your intellect is projecting upon it. And then there it is right in front of your face. And what he's essentially saying, I have to speak in codes because that's all that they see. So intriguingly, when you're looking at God, you can't serve the absolute, the undivided, the full source truth and the codes and the. Kind of like he's basically saying long before we had movies, you're not going to really have a very good life if you're walking around believing that my wife and I went to see the new Fast and Furious movie yesterday, just bombs and cars exploding, just everything, a total assault on the senses. And I mean, it's interesting, even in that, knowing this whole entire thing is a facade, even knowing that there's moments when you forget and all of a sudden you're in it and your heart's racing. But imagine if you're surrounded by that in all dimensions. So there's other things he talks about with money and wealth, and intriguingly, he's never really going after the accumulation of wealth. He's never really going after riches and abundance. Actually, he's supporting it. What he is doing, what I believe, what's written down at least, is he's trying to help us see clearly rather than just with all the codes that our brain's injecting upon it, and I mean... That's really what a parable is meant to do. It's meant to kind of get your brain going. All right, they're not necessary. Some you can kind of figure it out. There's still a few parables. Or if you read something like the Gospel of Thomas, there's some stuff in there where it's like, okay, I can feel something from it, but I don't really know exactly intellectually what it's saying. But And that's kind of a way of getting us to let go.
1: So effectively, it gets down to we're living in this world, but where is our heart aligned? Is that sort of, it's not the issue of the money. In this world,
2: though, not of it. Well, Interesting, right, because right.
1: heart, Leba in Aramaic, when you
2: hear him talking about heart, he's not just talking about the star tetrahedron in your chest. What that is, is the place where thought and feeling meet. Intriguingly, in the ancient teachings, almost all the ancient teachings universally, thought is not a creative source. Thought is actually an effect of feeling, which is the sensation of pure frequency. Now, when I say feeling, don't confuse that with emotion which is, I don't want to get too wide out here, but emotion in Latin, motus anima, is energy in motion, breath in motion. And that's essentially the energetic relationship between your movie that you think is your life, your world, and the inherent nature of your being. Now, if they're congruent, if they're in harmony, you're going to feel harmonious emotions. And that's going to be the energetic relationship. If they're out of sync, if they're disjointed, If you're essentially unconscious in the movie In the Dream, what Yogananda called the divine play, then you're going to feel those incongruent emotions. Feeling, though, is a little different. Feeling is like you walk into a room, and before any thought happens, there's no thinking. You just have this deep sensory, and I don't just mean the five senses. You have this deep sensory experience, and then all of a sudden, a thought comes. What the ancients always said was that thought was the crystallization or the effect of feeling, And feeling is where the creative source lies. Think about those moments when you're, this is really what he's speaking of, I believe, in terms of the kingdom, moments like the birth of a child, the death of a loved one, a beautiful yet painful natural death, I should say, not something necessarily violent. You think of those moments when you're in those states of transcendence. It was an idea in Aramaic called the pinnacle of the temple, meaning kind of like blowing a balloon. What's the maximum amount of energy, ecstasy, whatever that may be that you can take and feel as if you're about to burst. It does not mean climbing to the top of a little brick tower. It means where's the temple right here. It means that the energy body opens to such a place that I literally feel that I could almost, you can almost say die at any moment or cease to exist. Those transcendent moments. And then, of course, much like his vision quest in the desert, when the temple starts coming back down from those those states of awakening, that's when all the false evidence appearing real starts dumping out, all the fear comes out, etc. So, what he's basically saying here, to me, at least looking at it in Aramaic and even in the Greek, he's basically saying, let go of all the codes of the world, let go of all of the enigmas and realize that none of that is actually what is real. What's real is what's looking. And when you're in the world, though not of it, when you're a character in the play and you can be conscious of that without losing yourself in it, that's when you're able to literally move mountains. That's when you're able to literally realize that it isn't about gains and losses in the play. It's about realizing that, you already are that which you seek, and it's a matter of manifestation in the hand, which means make obvious. That's what the word manus festus, it means literally as obvious as my hand in Latin. So
1: this probably is a little off topic, but you mentioned that example you just shared with the pinnacle of the temple. That would be the significance of that third temptation of Christ, because that's where it happens, is on a pinnacle of the temple, I think it says, but effectively...
2: There's no word for a in Aramaic, so... Okay,
1: okay. So There's no biblical.
2: word that would signify an article in that sense. And what's interesting, too, people say he met the devil. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that in Greek or in Aramaic. In Aramaic, the word's akilkartsa, which means the inner tempter, accuser, or resister. It's his own shadow. It's his own unconscious. It's his own intellect that hasn't been brought into the light. And that happens after those transcendent states. You have this amazing experience, and all of a sudden, all your garbage dumps out. It's really clear in his native language, and it's pretty clear in the Greek, too, in that case. So,
1: So, okay, I'm trying to bring this down a notch or two to make sure I'm able to stay on track for people. Okay, so it's not so much money's bad and poverty's good. I mean, God's not expecting everybody to follow the path of a guy who I have respect for, St. Ignatius Loyola, who with the spiritual lessons and this idea, what is it called? You go through this 30 days of sort of an inner transformation. You take a vow of poverty and this prayer that, you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're referring to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sashipe. This is prayer, which effectively, God take everything, I'm giving it all to you, tangible, spiritual, whatever. That's not what we're being asked, so. Well, that's not a bad thing. The key there is people
2: aren't looking at it clearly. They're not doing what he suggested in the first place. They think that it's about releasing the stuff what that really is, it's not about that at all. This brings me actually to another place in Matthew. This is what started my journey when I was seven years old. I'm sitting in a classroom, and there might be a couple shows out of this, but I'm just sitting there in in vacation Bible school. It was June or July, 1979. I'm seven years old, and I'm sitting there with a Bible that's sitting right next to me that my mother had given me. And they're talking in vacation Bible school about Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Everybody in the room, all the kids and the teacher who was one of the kids' moms, they're all saying, basically referring to heaven as this place you go to after you die. So you're sort of, for lack of a better word, you're gathering brownie points so that when your body croaks, you'll get there and you'll be fine. And I put my hand up, but you know, the little scurvy elephant, as Wayne Dyer would have said, disturbing element. And I'm like, I was being honest. I was like, I don't understand why everybody's talking about heaven is only after you die. I don't see that. Where does he say it? Well, here he talks about it. And I'm like, okay, I see that he says that heaven's there, but I don't see him saying it's only there. There's something that Marcus Borg spoke of in Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, an amazing book. Marcus was a huge light for me. Rest in peace. But Marcus talked about this quagmire when he was younger of being told that God is in heaven or omnipresent, or excuse me, that God was omnipresent yet also in heaven. So he was like, you're kind of talking to me about heaven as a place after you die or like some kind of location. And yet on top of that, you're saying he's omnipresent. So you're gonna have to kind of pick one in that sense. So I kind of came face first against this and what happened, I talk about this in my book, Echoes of an Ancient Dream. I've got a couple videos about it on YouTube too, where I just, I'm looking down at the page And I kind of looked up at the teacher and she's talking and it was almost like from peanuts. I didn't hear what she was saying. And I looked down at the page and I didn't talk about this for a long time because I didn't want people thinking, oh, well, either he's nuts or he's special. I don't care what people think about me. I don't want them to not listen. But I looked down at the Bible, which is sitting right here. I saw levels or layers of what I can only, I realize now where language is almost like three-dimensionally into the page, lined up like the way an outline was, an indent, indent, indent. And I remember this glow. There's a glow that it was, I want to say it's golden and it was glowing, but it wasn't glowing and it wasn't golden. And I remember putting my hand over top of the page, seeing if it had any kind of a heat to it. And there was none. And that's when I realized, all of a sudden I'm surrounded by darkness. And I look up, no big major thing. The teacher and the students I guess we're out in the hallway because I could hear the talking. And she walks back up to the doorway. To me, she had already turned the lights out. And she's like, are you coming? And I know my face was red because she's probably thinking, what did he do? And I remember walking out the door. I still remember the smell. And I remember walking down the hallway behind everybody, teacher included, down the red brick steps, turning to the right, going to the end of where the church is. And this was the church of my childhood in Clarksboro, New Jersey. And then walking back to where the baseball diamond was. There was like an old grill swing set and things like that. But something was different. The only way I can explain it is like it was as if I spent. Years or decades with some great stereophonic sound system, dialing it in, getting it sounding as amazing as it possibly could, even at the age of seven. But then all of a sudden, somebody walks up and pulls a blanket off of my speakers, and everything went, oh. So there's this presence, and I'm seeing light dancing in the trees but there was no lights. I can hear like a high sheen. I almost want to say angel voices and I don't It wasn't dramatic for me yet. I think this is my first conscious memory of one of those pinnacle of the temple experiences. And then I remember looking over at the teacher and she's still looking at me like, what did this kid do? And that really was something that was so visceral, which literally in the Latin means gut level thing for me, that It literally reshaped the architecture of the rest of my life. And honestly, I feel like on some level made it harder because once that door opens, the truth is it never really shuts again. And when you mentioned AA in the beginning, I've got not me personally, but I have friends, one in particular, it's one of my dearest that I've sat in with his meetings. My name is Dale. I'm just listening. And I tell people all the time, if you think you've got it tough, You want a little bit of a humility experience. Go to an AA meeting and just sit and listen. Just listen. It's amazing.
1: Okay, so here's a question then, because I think at least this is the heart of where for me and maybe a lot of other people, there's a conflict. And then again, I'll go to a parable, which you're familiar with, that's in Luke 12, verse 13 to 21, the rich fool. And the short of it is, this guy's got all this stuff. The warning is against covetedness, which I'm sure has meaning too. Um, <laughs> he has all this stuff and he doesn't have enough room. So he spends his time building bigger buildings to store all his wealth. And of course, God said to him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? And so I think, and I'm asking for you to comment on this because to me, there is an element of Responsibility, stewardship, I don't know, whatever the word is when you have wealth, that it's terrible stewardship. The word is okay, is meant, thank at you, least God. in the Aramaic, but yeah. So and that's my thing. And you brought up AA, which to me is the other extreme. So, on one hand, I'm a member of a church that reportedly has hundreds of billions of dollars. It's actually a secret, which brings up a whole nother host of problems, in my opinion. <laughs> Because nobody really knows. Then you have an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous, where they have a stated tradition which says, We have Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name out, never be drawn into public controversy. They subsist through contributions from these meetings where people are throwing a buck or two in a hat that goes around, you know, the seventh tradition. And to me, that's pure. And it's pure because they're not beholden to any worldly enticings. They don't owe anybody anything, they're not owned. How's that? Where the mission stays pure. And then you've got this other situation where at some point in the world we live in, and again, you can comment on this too, if you want, is there's a certain amount of money that once you get into those echelons, you're having to compromise your principles. I think it, it consumes you. I think it becomes exactly what you're talking about, which is it's not something that you're serving or aware of or is a part of in your heart. You're a slave to it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So that's exactly what both
2: of those parables are really about. Where's your value? Where's your foundations? There's a huge difference between having wealth and being lost in it. No different than being lost in the dream. And that brings up other ideas as well, like the root of all evil and lots of other things. So,
1: yeah, let's talk about that, because I think that's probably the heart of this, really, is that scripture. Love of money is the root of all the evils, I think. That's That's 1
2: Timothy, right?
1: Yep. 6, 10.
2: Yeah. Intriguingly, so there's two big things here. To focus on first. One, before I even talk about the money part, is just the word evil. Because modern people, and I say this with all of the love in my heart, and I'm talking about biblical experts, theological experts, and the people running the church, bless their hearts, are almost wholly, fully ignorant of what evil meant in Jesus's language. Okay? So, let me just explain that first, because Evil's kind of an intense word, if you want to look at it, and there are intense energies in the world. So evil is, intriguingly, if I pick up a banana and it's stone green, okay, that's an evil banana. The word is bisha in Aramaic, stone green, or a banana that's black and oily and it's like rotting and there's flies all over. Rotten, underripe or overripe, what does it really mean? Evil means not fertile, not ripe right now in this moment. So intriguingly, the root of each of the Beatitudes, blessed are, is the sound tuve. Tuv, interestingly, if you have it in more of an Eastern dialect, it actually sounds more like tall. What's interesting about it is, let's put it this way, like if you have dark, rich soil and it's fertile for planting, it's porous like humus, water can flow through it, when Yeshua says having your seed, your Zakra, and throwing that down, if you throw it on fertile soil, it's going to grow, it's going to grow, on the and with the slightest, the least amount of faith, smaller than a mustard seed, which is not the smallest seed, but it's essentially a scrub brush so that they would have understood what he was talking about, versus throwing it on evil soil, which just means underripe or overripe. The conditions are not fertile. When's the only moment in time you can judge fruit as ripe? It's right now. And intriguingly, sink your teeth into it, the juice runs down your chin from the nectarine and it's fragrant. Intriguingly, that sound, tub, is the base of one of the primary words for the word bless. The main word for bless in Aramaic is barak or baruch, intriguingly. But tub is another way of saying bless. And what does bless really mean? It's the radiance of the fertility of now. He was constantly talking about now. Most of it was completely lost going into Koine Greek. So first of all, money being the root of all evil, where that word money there, it's not mammon, it's not mammona, and I see theologians and I see TV preachers all the time saying mammon is the root of all evil, and all it tells me, bless their hearts, is they don't know the history of their own religion, they've never actually studied this stuff, bless your hearts, I love you all, it's a whole different word, it's kespa, the literal translation of kespa is not just money. This could be an example. It literally means the belief in the illusion or the appearance of a rate of exchange, meaning that I can give you something, whether it be a possession, money, even boost your ego that now once you have that, you feel like you're more than you were before you got it. Or I could take something from you, whether it be property, money, I could deflate your ego. And pull that away so that now you feel that you're less than you were. The truth of the matter, though, according to him, is that we already are what we seek. We already have the kingdom. We have heaven, and it's right here and it's right now. The word heaven, Shemaiah, that's our daughter Shemaiah. She just turned 12 on Friday. That ayah sound at the end of Shemaiah means something that has no beginning and no ending. It has no boundary, which means heaven's either everywhere or it's nowhere. And it's the same word as sky, which is how heaven was located in the sky, which is why he said, if heaven's in the sky, the birds will precede you. If heaven's in the water, the birds will precede you, or the kingdom, I should say. But looking at this, what is the root of all evil? It's believing that in this thing, this world this play that we're watching, this movie, it would probably be more like a play to them in ancient times, believing that that's what's real, that somehow getting more in it makes you more of a person, makes you more than you already are. But the truth of the matter is you are divine. You have access to everything regardless of your physical conditions, and you want to learn a lot about that without getting religious? Read Man's Search for Meaning from Viktor Frankl. If somebody can be stripped naked, tortured, watch his family be tortured, be urinated on, chained to the floor in a concentration camp, and still say, I am still in control of my mind. They cannot control what I think. They cannot control what I feel. If he can do that and not whine and come out the other side of it, I'd say most of us are just little brats
1: with our thumb in our mouth <laughs> with a
2: lot of conditions. So,
1: so okay, this is really good because... I'm trying. Wrote down. You talk about. It seems that the warning here, or one of the warnings, is getting distracted from the now. Which now I'm thinking, what's emphasized in most religions is we're all looking ahead. Everybody's worried about their eternal, their future. Where am I headed? How am I going to get there? Am I checking all the boxes? It's actually a complete distraction
2: because you're giving up now for a future now that will never exist. You'll never find the future. I don't care how good our science gets, because you can only experience it now. Even if you jump time,
1: you're still now. You get what I'm saying? Right. Are you familiar with John Eldridge, Wild Horse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because you don't want to come off sound like you're the guy with all the answers, but one of the things I've noticed since we've relocated is there are a lot of people who are giving up there now, as he talks about, have been tamed I think it's the word he uses. That's what
2: started my journey as a seven-year-old. It was giving it up to lay up brownie points in heaven.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. I just, God is, like you said, that's my experience. He's with us all the time. I've shared this at church the few times that I'm asked to speak anymore, but I was the prodigal son who was wandering around in the field. I wasn't looking to come home. I was just wandering, and then God came out and gave me the ring on my finger, and the robe, and the fatted calf, and these things, and the slippers on my feet. And so it's really interesting because even the convoluted meaning from what I'm getting from you has shifted the emphasis on things that really don't matter.
2: Let's pause for a second with one other just, I don't want to get too much into the God word, but intriguingly, God comes from the Germanic GUD, G U with two phonic dots and a D. The God of the Old Testament, Elohim, from. The Hebrew means one, elo, eloi, Eli, and many. So I say the one and the many, which is not the God Yeshua was referring to. Yeshua, the word that came out of his mouth in Aramaic was alaha. And intriguingly, alaha means absolute. This is going to be hard for people that are in the Christian religion. Bless their hearts, they ate the menu that was served and a lot haven't gotten to the meal. But in order to get the meal, you have to understand this one thing from ancient Aramaic. Alaha, that Yeshua used as God, means absolute, here's the kicker, only being, meaning everything. And this is not pantheism. This is not all kinds of modern theological understandings. Everything is God. And the more we're able to, in the present moment, experience more of the wholeness and the fullness, and uh, here's a dualistic word, non-fragmented nature of truth, the more we're able to have these awakening experiences, these pinnacle of the temple experiences, and continually evolve and grow. And if we are physical, if we are experience this meat suit journey that we're going through, there is always more. There's always more evolution. There's always more to learn because the only thing that can come into the presence of the absolute, I no longer use the word one because in mathematics it implies zero and two, nothing can come into the presence of the absolute but the absolute. And there's nothing we can think about the absolute in the Tao Te Ching. The Tao that can be named, regardless of what you want to call it, is not the eternal Tao. It's a finger pointing at the moon, intriguingly. And what we've done is, even in the beginning, was the word, the beginning of Yohanan, Bereshit Etoihwa Milta. The Gospel of John was originally titled the Gospel of the Beloved Disciple. And it wasn't originally about a man, it was about a woman. And it was Saint, I put Saint in quotes from the Catholic Church, Saint Irenaeus, that had that regendered and named it John and signified John as the supposed beloved disciple, literally based on his own misogyny. How do I know that? Because he wrote it down and he recorded it, and we have all of that. That being said, in the beginning was the word. The word word is milta. Ta genders that word feminine. In Greek, it's logos. Now, intriguingly, milta can't be written on a page, then it becomes mela, which is an actual physical word that can be written on a page. If you were to actually write a physical word on the page and tell people that it's the actual word of God, you committed blasphemy. In Greek, koine Greek, logos, also feminine. It's an actual state of experience that cannot be boiled down into a thought, into an idea whatsoever, because then it just becomes a finger pointing at the moon. Then it becomes Lexus or Lego, which is a word that can be written down. Lego literally means peace, literally. It's where the word Legos comes from. So what I'm saying is we boiled this stuff down, we created these theologies that we're now having relationships not with something divine in a lot of cases. We're just having these emotional experiences with intellectual concepts written down on a page. And I'm not saying they're bad because they're written down. What I am saying is the divine doesn't fit into that on the page because what happened is we started buying it and selling it to each other. And then we start saying, I have the truth. You don't have the truth, and you don't have the truth, and you don't. Just a few months ago, I saw that it was like 17,000 defined versions of Christianity right now, when I put my DVD, The Word, out back in 2012, at that time, there was th- little over 3,750 versions of the Bible available, either printed or on the market. And I'm not saying the English version, the Spanish version. I'm saying different versions. So my question here is what I asked my teacher as a kid. Actually, I asked my grandmother, then I asked my teacher, and then I asked my minister, and none of them could answer. I said, why is this called the Word of God if these five Bibles, I actually sat on my grandmother's floor when I was seven years old after that whole heaven experience and compared Bibles. I was comparing that moth and rust to not destroy. I'm like, why are these all different? They're saying things that are different enough that even me, a little kid, I don't think I had the word inerrant, but in my head, I'm like, I'm being told this is the Word of God, but they're different. I don't understand. And nobody could answer the questions for me. So again." Why? Because of what this conversation started with. Because we were all looking in that. We were looking this, in the sea of what seems to be obvious, the sea of the manifestation, rather than coming back to the projection point. How many lights am I holding? I use this all the time in a lot of talks. People will say one. And then if I go like this, I'm like, oh, well, it's kind of interesting. We think there's 7 billion people on earth, but it's a funny thing. I can point at any dot and say, that's the miraculous dot, but how many lights are there really? There's only one. Interestingly, (laughs) the word angel is the same as the word angle, angulos in Koine Greek. And literally we are the light of eternity projected and or refracted into this, what we call manifest or obvious universe. But unfortunately what we do is we tend to kind of fall asleep and think we're the projection point. When we aren't the point, of what it manifests as, we're where it's coming from. And we each, each of us are gonna have a completely unique experience of the absolute within ourselves. And we can basically almost do whatever we want with it. We can kill people, we can do whatever. We can be alcoholics, we can love people, we can serve ice cream.
1: So is that simply put in the Christian world, the body of Christ, but taken to a real broad, more... The body, the corpus
2: from Latin, that's pagra in Aramaic, which literally means corpse, Got it. <laughs> which means meat suit. So,
1: <laughs> Okay. Again, bringing this back, trying to just sort of stretch it out here a little bit. This may be a loaded question, but I mean, from a spiritual institutional perspective, yes. I mean, where do you see, because to me, what you're talking about is empowering people to a point where they can't be controlled.
2: I'm saying it would be a result of it, but it's not its point. But yes.
1: Okay. That's a consequence of seeing your true divinity. And if you can't be controlled, (laughs) there's all sorts of consequences for that. So I guess the the question would be is from a spiritual, institutional, organizational standpoint, are there entities, I'm using a corporate term in this case on earth that seem to be able to balance this? to me AA is one, because that's the only exposure I have, anything on that line. Are there others that seem to get this balance? Can you have wealth? Be an organization, a spiritual organization that has wealth and still align with what you're saying, the true meaning of our divinity. I think there's pieces of it
2: in different organizations. I don't know that there's a perfect organization. Just a little example. Look at something like Costco. And I don't remember the exact ratio. Is it that the CEO can only make 40 times what the lowest employee? And you think, 40 times? That's insane. That's a lot. But you look at most corporations, bankers or whatever, that'll drive a company into the ground and still get a $15 million severance. It's interesting that when you start looking at more of a fractal nature, of, which means self-similar nature to what you're doing. And I mean, just something like that can be a start of understanding. I think a lot of us are getting forced to look at things like this since COVID because a lot of the structures, and that includes me, I don't know if I'm smart enough or have enough wisdom to like name too many organizations. But I will say, during COVID, it's almost like a pivot point. And I'm not saying it was bad. It is what it is. But during that whole COVID thing, I and lots of other whatever, ministers, spiritual teachers, light workers, people have all these names for themselves, started to realize, wait a second, the way we used to get ourselves into the world doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. Intriguingly, even on social media, without going too deep into algorithms or Jaron Lanier and the people that write those, intriguingly, even at that same time, the algorithms were coming in on Facebook as an example that you could no longer advertise an event without paying for it because the algorithm would grab that language and that's literally what it does. It forces it down in the newsfeed. So you have to kind of find ways of like announcing your event without saying you're having an event. And don't give times or dates or anything like that, what I'm saying. To me, I see this as something very empowering. Me, I was forced to go online more. I had spent 12 years on the road. I had already kind of started pulling off the road and I was doing a lot of mentoring, one-on-one mentoring. And I didn't feel like I had a lot of, as you're asking, like big corporations or even just whatever entities. I think that when they get to a particular point, the maintenance can be tricky. And I would never be so... Bold is to point my finger at them because me in the microcosm, I'm kind of dealing with the same things. But as it gets bigger and bigger, and things get like even me as my work gets out there more, I can't say it gets easier. There's more for me to pay attention to. There's more of a complexity. And then when you get other people involved, you have other ideas, you have other belief systems, you have other intentions involved. In the end, I feel like it's even with this shift that I went through. Or am going through, it's like I'm doing my best and doing what I can to stay true to myself. I'm a person who, to me, it's very important. I kind of make it harder on myself in a financial way because it's important to me that I stay authentic and real. So it means that there's certain things I could do in a big rah-rah way, not that there's something wrong with big (laughs) rah-rah that I don't do because I want to make sure that what's going out there is me, that it's not necessarily just a facade of me. But in order to make it bigger, this is the thing most people don't want to talk about, which is why I love speaking with you. You have to turn it into some kind of, not necessarily facade, but in a way, I don't have another word for it. It's funny because the word facade in Aramaic is the word ape. What it means is persona or mask. It was translated from the Aramaic into the Greek. And in the Greek, intriguingly, it just means individualized self. In Aramaic, it meant mask, and it's the word translated as hypocrite. And it's the mask that an actor would wear in the beginning of a divine play. Hopefully, by the end, they would lower the mask and reveal their true nature. But in order to make it bigger and bigger in the marketing sense, you need the mask, if you understand what I'm saying. And I mean, people say to me, oh, I went through an ego death. I'm like, oh, your ego would love to own your ego death. If you had an ego death, without an ego, you'd walk into traffic. Without an ego, you'd be laying on the floor, slobbering on yourself. It's not about that. It's the same like with like a marketing persona.
1: Without an ego, you wouldn't be telling me you had an ego. Definitely. I know. Isn't that funny? That's why I love it.
2: <laughs> it's like your ego wants to own that one. But my point is it's a lot more uncomfortable. It's a conversation a lot of people don't want to have in the spirituality, whatever realm. It's wild. I mean, I see a lot of underhanded stuff. People steal my work a lot, word for word and take literally take credit for it as their own. It just happened a few weeks ago with a really known speaker in the Magdalene movement, totally took my Aramaic Lord's Prayer and claimed it as hers word for word. She didn't even change a word. So my point is just me. I'm at a place where I know that I've never felt sort of the cosmos behind me in such a sense that it's time for the work that I'm doing to get out there. And I'm doing what I can to do it from a level of love and not be in judgment. And like, as an example, 15 years ago, I had to stop studying the Catholic Church because it was contaminating the love or the presence within my work too much. When I started learning about what really happened within the Catholic Church over the last 1700 years, it was like, I had to lay it down because I started getting an ax to grind, in a sense. And that comes out into your marketing, how you project yourself. It's funny, I'm at a place now where I feel it's time for like, some kind of investment in this and finding people who don't necessarily understand everything I understand or even believe it all, but believe it enough to go behind it and help it go out into the world. And just to stay as authentic as possible. I started a 501c3 organization a few years ago that's still kind of sitting there. And I mean, I've designed... Aramaic Lord's Prayer, lithographs, posters, canvases, bumper stickers. Rachma is the primary word for love. I designed t-shirts that say, got Rachma in like the milk font. People would be like, what's Rachma? It starts a conversation starter. But, you know, ways of actually putting support materials out through a not-for-profit organization where it's also educating at the same time. And I think, honestly, for years, this is a subject that you and I sort of talked about the other day. It wasn't a fear, but it was almost like this embedded, it's not good to market spirituality, or if you're talking about God, you shouldn't take money for it. That stuff contaminated me for a long time. And to be honest, there's probably still a little of it there. And people, of course, are constantly, oh, you should be doing this for free. And I'm like, there's a problem with that. My family doesn't like living in the street. The other problem with it is, they like eating sometimes three times a day. I've got kids, sometimes I want to eat six times a day and they think I'm being a smart ass or something. I'm like, no, this is actually the way it
0: is. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.